Let us worship God and let's bow for a moment of prayer. Gracious and beloved Lord, Thou hast given us the day, and now, Lord, Thou dost give us the night. And we pray, Lord, now that darkness has fallen, Thou wouldst be indeed not only the light of the world, but the light in our hearts this night. As Thou dost allow this sanctuary to be lit up from within, so we pray, Lord, that not only in a physical sense would the light shine out from this place, but that each of us, as we return again to our respective homes and places of work in the week ahead, if we be spared to see it, each of us may bear within us something of that light of Christ, that we may shine forth as lights in a dark world. Be with us then this evening, and empty us out of all the anxieties and cares and burdens that so frequently weigh down upon us, that we might be free in mind and thought to focus upon Thee, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So do Thou empty us of the world and fill us now with Thy Spirit, and fill Thou this house of prayer with Thy holy presence, sanctifying our gathering and giving us that sense of humble and holy joy in the Lord, that the joy of the Lord may indeed be our strength. Go with us then into this time of worship together and help us by thy Spirit and forgive us for all our sin for Jesus' sake. Amen. And we'll sing to the Lord's praise, first of all, and sing Psalms number 130. Sing Psalms number 130, of which we'll sing the whole psalm, verses 1 to 8, four stanzas. Lord, from the depths I call to you. Lord, hear me from on high, and give attention to my voice when I for mercy cry. And so unto the end, O Israel, put your hope in God, for mercy is with him, and full redemption from their sins his people heal redeem. Psalm, sing Psalms number 130, the whole psalm to God's praise.
let us pray. Eternal and ever-blessed Lord, as we lift up our hearts to Thee now this evening hour, we pray Thee draw near unto us, for we have need of Thee this night, just as we have need of Thee each day, each night, each hour. But how much more, Lord, at the times of worship together, when the evil one is so inclined to come amongst us to distort or distract, or if he can, destroy that unity and love which we have with thee and one with another, that he may, O Lord, take away from that which thou thyself hast given. So give us, O Lord, of thy protection tonight. Give us of thy great grace, that as we lift our thoughts, our hearts, upwards to thee, thou wouldst look down upon us in mercy and grace, protecting us, Lord, and surrounding us with thy loving embrace. Lord, we adore thee this night, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And as we acknowledge, Lord, each person of the Holy Trinity, we thank thee that this is our God, a God of love and grace, of mercy and of favor, who is so ready to pardon iniquity and indeed to take upon himself the price and the burden thereof. Because upon the cross our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ has paid in full and in his own precious blood the price of sin for all who will trust and believe in his name. So, Lord, we pray, increase our faith, deepen our love and our gratitude to Thee, and expand our vision that we may be enabled to see all the ways in which Thou art mightily at work in this world and even in this our day, and that we might likewise have a clearer sight and understanding of all that we have cause to be thankful for. For, Lord, we truly are thankful to Thee tonight that Thou in Thy mercy hast not dealt with us as our sins deserve, but Thou hast been patient with us. Thou, Lord, hast waited upon us till we are brought to the place of realization and repentance and confession, till we see, Lord, just what we have allowed ourselves to become, till we see, O Lord, all that we are now and ought not to be. And yet, Father, we know that by thy grace we are not as we once were. And so we pray that even the great grace of bringing us thus far within the house of prayer tonight, this is mercy on thy part. This is grace. For we know, Lord, that if thou shouldst return in glory, even this hour, even this night, there is nowhere that we would rather be found than in the Lord's house and in prayer together. So, Lord, help us and bless our time together one with another and give us indeed a humble heart of repentance that we may seek the forgiveness of sin which is with thee alone through thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, that we would be thankful that such grace is freely available to us day by day, that there is no shortage of mercy with the living God and how we have need of mercy and that whilst there is life, there is hope for each one of us and for multitudes who as yet know thee not. Surely, Lord, it is in mercy that thou dost not yet come again, because there are many yet to be gathered into thy kingdom. So, Lord, help us. 
and make us channels of thy grace this night and all the days and nights for which we may be spared. We pray, O Lord, that thou wouldst remember this land in which we dwell. Be with us in our nation, for it is not only in darkness of night, but it's in a spiritual darkness as well. And we have need, Lord, of the light of the dawn of thy gospel afresh once more upon us. We know that we've had it in the past. We know that we have, over many generations, dissipated it and frittered away so many of the blessings that thou didst give us. But we pray, O Lord, that thou wouldst raise up generations, men and women and boys and girls, who will live for thee and burn with zeal for thee, who will be, however unwitting or unconsciously, channels of that grace and love and mercy of God and be a means of quietly evangelizing others and drawing them not to themselves but to thee. So, Lord, do thou awaken our land and nation, Cause us, O Lord, to find and discover afresh that whilst human pride is vain, gratitude to God is truly something which blesses a nation, and the righteousness of Christ is that which exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. O Lord, we pray that thou wouldst remember thy church this night throughout the world. We do pray for the work of the gospel in our own land, we know that we're not the only branch of thy church. We know that there are others faithfully serving thee in different parts and denominations and places throughout this our land. And we do pray for the witness of the gospel, whithersoever thou art uh, willing to work. And we know we're only a small part of that. But we do thank thee for what is being done. And we pray that thou wouldst bless every missionary organization, every group of believers, Lord, that is uh, set and seeking to, to bring the good news of grace to other lands or to support uh, local native churches in other lands and to be a helping hand, a brother or sister in Christ to them to strengthen the witness of the gospel in these places which now, though once mission fields, are effectively those who are sending missionaries to us. And how great is our need of their prayers and of their help and support. But we do pray that thou wouldst continue the work of ingathering, if not country by country, as each one, Lord, now more and more are receiving the gospel. And as we thank thee that more and more tribes and tongues are receiving portions of scripture or indeed whole Bibles or New Testaments in their own native tongues. And so the word is coming alive for them. And we pray thy blessing on all the Bible societies, Lord, and translation bodies. We thank thee, Lord, for the work of the Scottish Bible Society and the Trinitarian Bible Society and the Wycliffe Bible Translators and all those who are involved in distributing and translating and publishing of thy word. But we know there's always more need than there is supply. But we pray thee, Lord, to bring in not only by the countries, but also by the generations, those who may yet be unborn, but whom thou, Lord, art setting apart and hast set apart from all eternity to be thine own. Help us then to recognize the greatness of the work to which thou hast called each of us to be a small part. The vastness, Lord, of thy great plan of salvation in which thou dost privilege us to belong and to play a small part in our place and time. 
Help us then, Lord, and use us, each one. Use us and make us willing to serve, indeed, to put all the resources and abilities of our life and strength and breath and years at thy disposal. For, Lord, when it comes to the very last day, when we look back, whether the years left to us be many or be few, we know that if we have devoted that life and those years to Thee, we will never have cause to regret, never wish that we had given more time to the world and less to the Lord, will never wish that we had spent less time in prayer and devoted more to worldly business. We will never have cause, Lord, to be sorrowful that we have such a Saviour. So, Lord, bless then the time Thou hast given us for the years of our lives and indeed for this night together, which is a small fraction of it, that Thou wouldst be amongst us, bless us, forgive our many shortcomings, and hear our individual prayers, for we bear them up to Thee, Lord, and although the lips of man may enunciate some of the things that some of us may be thinking of, or perhaps had not thought of, yet we know it is Thou only, the Holy Spirit, who art able to discern and understand the thoughts of every heart. And that those wishes and thoughts and anxieties which are expressed perhaps not even in articulate words, but in groans which are too deep for verbal expression, thou hearest and knowest and understandest and answerest each one. So hear us graciously, O Lord, love us freely and continue with us now for Jesus' sake. Amen. I will sing again to the Lord's praise in the traditional psalms. Now it's Psalm number 139. Psalm 139, of which we'll sing the verses marked 1 to 6. That is the first four stanzas. Psalm 139 at the beginning. O Lord, thou hast me searched and known. Thou knowest my sitting down and rising up. Yea, all my thoughts afar to thee are known. My footsteps and my lying down thou compassest always. Thou also most entirely art acquaint with all my ways. And so on to the verse 6. Behind, before thou hast beset, and laid on me thine hand. Such knowledge is too strange for me, too high to understand. Psalm 139, the first four stanzas to God's praise.
Well, let us read together from God's Word as we find it in the Scriptures of the New Testament. In the first letter of John, uh, chapter 4. First John, chapter 4. And we'll read the whole of the chapter, that is verses 1 to 21. First John, chapter 4, beginning at the first verse. Hear the Word of God. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God, and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his own most holy word. We'll sing again to the Lord's praise in Sing Psalms number 42. Sing Psalms number 42, of which we'll sing the verses 7 to 11. That is the last five stanzas. Sing Psalms 42 at verse 7. Deep calls to deep as with a roar. Your waterfalls cascading roll. Your waves and breakers fall on me. They overwhelm my very soul. By day the Lord directs his love. His song remains with me at night. A prayer to him who is my God, my only source of life and light. And so on to the end. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed in me? Trust God, for I will praise him yet. My Savior and my God is he. Sing Psalms number 42 verses 7 to 11 the last five stanzas to God's praise. (laughs) 
Well, let us pray. Lord, Thou art indeed our Saviour and our God, and the Saviour Thou wouldst be of all and any who will put their trust in Thee and abandon all hope of our own false righteousness. Thou art indeed the God of all the earth. There is none else beside Thee. So it is but common sense and wisdom for us to recognize that yes, there is a true supreme being who rules and directs all things. And yes, he is the God of the Bible who has revealed himself in creation and providence and through his written word and his prophets and through his law and ultimately in the person and work of his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And we, O Lord, are inheritors of that work and witness, we who have been enabled to believe or to follow. It is not through any righteousness on our part. It is not because we are good or gracious, but it is because Thou art both. And so, Lord, we look to Thee now to feed our souls with Thine own bread of life, the Holy Word of God. For we ask it all in his name and for his sake. Amen. I'd like us to look this evening for a little while at the latter part of this fourth chapter that we read from First John. Taking really from, from verse 12 uh, onwards uh, to the end of the chapter. Really about the relationship of love between the Lord and his people and us for one another and so on. About how we are effectively to live out our witness to God but also to have his love and his witness within us uh, toward him and toward one another here. And as we start at this verse 12, where I'd like us to, to begin here, um, the very first part of it really, I suppose, needs a wee bit of unpacking, because we see here, as it says at verse 12, no one has ever seen God. And we think, well, hang on a minute, surely we can think of some passages in Scripture that imply that some people have seen God. I mean, um, Job 42 at verse 5 says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And in Genesis, remember when Jacob is wrestling with the angel um, at the, the brook, uh, brook Jabbok, and uh, when he calls the place Penuel, he says, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. But it doesn't say explicitly, of course, it was God he was wrestling with. It says a man he was wrestling with. Verse 24 of that chapter says, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. But it's not uncommon when one encounters a person who subsequently turns out to have been an angelic messenger of God to then think, oh no, I have seen that which is of the divine. I've seen the divine messenger, that means I've seen God, that means I'm going to die. And people had that sort of tendency, partly because I suppose you thought if you're actually seeing something which is of God, then it means you must be either just about to enter the next world or you're already there. So they think they're about to die or that they may already be dead. But this sort of, not confusion, but mixture of man of God, angel of God, seeing God himself, you know, it's not uncommon, especially throughout the Old Testament. You know, if we... We think in terms of when Samson's parents 
were first told that they were to conceive uh, the baby boy who would be Samson. Um, you know, at the end of that encounter with the angel of God, man of God, however we encounter him, um, Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. And yet throughout that passage, and we can just read a wee bit of it here in, in Judges 13, you'll see that angel of God or man of God are used interchangeably throughout that passage. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me. Now it said before it was an angel of God. She says a man of God. His appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name. And verses 8 to 11 then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said O Lord please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah her husband was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. Manoah arose, went after his wife, came to the man, and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. And it's after that encounter that Manoah then says to his wife, we'll, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. And yet they both recognize that whether they think of him in terms of a man, or whether they think of him in terms of an angel, this is an encounter with the divine even if it be simply divine messenger. So people think or recognize or understand they've seen something of God at different times, especially in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 34, uh, we read at verse 10, There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. But Moses didn't always see God face to face. Exodus 33, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. And why then does Moses say in verse 18, Please show me your glory. If he's seen God face to face, what more does he need of God's glory? But he said, You cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. While my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, if we go back again to what it says in Deuteronomy 34, that arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Is it not quite plausible that the Lord knew Moses face to face, but Moses didn't necessarily know the Lord in that same depth and personal, deeply uh, personal face-to-face way. It doesn't follow that Moses necessarily had the same knowledge of the Lord as the Lord had of Moses. So, going back to our reading, 1 John 4, verse 12, where it says, No one has ever seen God. No man hath seen God at any time. As well as writing this verse 12, John had also written in his gospel account, in chapter 1 at verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is in the Father's side, he has made him known. Or, as the authorized version puts it, it says, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. 
Now, John also wrote, of course, in chapter 14 of his gospel account, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The point that John is making throughout, whether in his gospel account or whether in his letters, and which is consistent with the rest of scripture, is that whilst from time to time folk may have deeply spiritual encounters, whether with an angel or having a glimpse of the glory and power of God, nobody on earth at any rate, we won't speak for heaven of course, um, nobody has actually seen God save those who have laid eyes on Christ Jesus in the days of his flesh or saw him in the state of glory like Saul on the road to Damascus or Stephen just before his death or the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration but other than that if you haven't seen Jesus in the flesh you haven't seen God and the point that is being made throughout is that it is Christ who makes God known I'll say that again it is Christ who makes God known. That is the point that John is seeking to bring out here. You have never seen him. I have never seen him. Nor has anyone else. But to know Christ is to know God. This is another reason why every humanly invented religion fails hopelessly. Because without Christ, you can never know God. And you can never be saved. But given that the most deep, unsurpassed divine love that ever existed is the love between the Father and the Son. Okay, Spirit as well. Let's include all three persons of the Trinity here. But if we are loving one another as brethren and sisters in Christ, because we belong to Christ, then the Lord must be alive and dwelling in us just as Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed that in John 17. If you remember from verse 21, Jesus prayed that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. Now, these verses, of course, are often parroted by ecumenical enthusiasts as though they, they referred simply to organizational union amongst different denominations, whereas they are correctly understood as describing the spiritual unity, the mutual love between believers and between the different persons of the Godhead and the Lord's people. The divine love is that close, that personal in the life of a Christian. It is the most intense love they can ever have. Now, if, for example, you were to say to a born-again Christian, who do you love most in the world? Then probably in their unconverted state, they might have said, well, my husband or my wife or my kids or whatever. But the answer that a born-again Christian will give is, I love the Lord first and foremost. Christ is more important to me. Christ is more beloved to me than any other human love whatsoever. And that has to be the order of priority. Otherwise, if you think about it, we are putting something, someone, ahead of God. 
We're making something else more important in our heart, more important in our lives than the Lord is. There can be no number one in our lives that is not the Lord. So if we're in a born-again state, then loving the Lord first of all and foremost with all of our heart and all of our soul and mind and strength, that has to be first. That has to be the intensity, the depth the be-all and end-all of our most important love of all. And it's not that our human loves are then dismissed out of hand. It's rather that they all have their right and proper place. That they come next, our spouses, our children, and all the other human loves that are there. It's right these love, these God-honoring loves, human loves, are there, but under God. First and foremost, our greatest love has to be for Him. It is that personal, that close, because the love between the different persons of the Godhead is the most intense, deep, divine love that exists anywhere in heaven or in earth. The love that God has in and amongst the different persons of the Godhead, that love is expanded out, we might say, to encompass the Lord's own children. That is, believers who are called upon thus to love one another excuse me, by way of evidence that the Lord does dwell in them. Now I think, well, how can it expand out? I don't know how that works. Well, some of you may perhaps have been in this situation where, you know, when, let's say, you get married and you're newly wed and filled with love for each other and you think, oh, I can't imagine ever there being enough love to share with anyone else but this, my beloved. And then, perhaps, in the fullness of time, maybe a little child comes along and, lo and behold, the love expands to increase this little child as well. And if there's another one, will it increases to encompass that one too and it's not that there's less love it's a certain amount like a loaf of bread chopped up into smaller amounts and distributed to more people it's rather more like if you think like like a candle where you take the little flame of the candle and then you light an unlit one and then another unlit one and then another unlit one and from a single flame you you can multiply flames and increase the amount of light that's given off but you haven't reduced the flame of the first candle at all. In fact, you've expanded it, you've increased it. It's a very poor illustration, but it's something in terms of what the the love that we have that we think we can't possibly have enough to share with anyone else because it's so deep, it's so intense. And yet, when other legitimate loves come along, we can encompass children, family, and so on, within that which we thought was intensely reserved for only one person. The Lord loves his people collectively as his bride and individually as his children. And to take human relationships as a parallel, most people would agree that the love of a husband and wife was or should be one of the closest and most intimate and binding of human loves. But the love of parents for children is also naturally intensely strong. God's love for his bride and for his children combines these two kinds of loves, fusing them into a strength of deep commitment and intensity and protection and salvation with which nothing in this world can compete. He is in us if we are his. Thus we read verses 12 to 14, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. You cannot love him with this kind of selfless devotion and yet still hold back from commitment to him or from admitting or professing to the world that you love him. Such profession is only the beginning. With such a statement, such a public acknowledgement that this is your Savior, that this is the one in whom you trust personally as your individual Savior, with such a statement you begin your outward and public life as a professing Christian. That is not the end. Although, you know, it's the end of one part of the journey. You know, you get your conversion stage and you're growing and understanding of the Lord. Finally, you commit to the Lord with everything you have. It's the end of that stage. It's the end of the beginning, you might say. But it's not the end of the journey. It's not the end of the relationship. It is only the beginning. It's only fairy tales that end on the wedding day. In real life, the marriage begins on the wedding day and life in all its fullness and struggle and joys and sorrows and tears and laughter and yes often the begetting of other lives all of that follows on but you will never be a means of begetting new souls into Christ of bringing new believers to the new birth if you yourself fight shy of such a beginning how will you bear fruit if the stock is never planted. Verse 15 we read, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. When we go on to verses 16 and 17 we read here, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. Now the New Testament is not written in English of course. It was written originally in Greek and in the Greek there are three different, at least three, maybe more, but at least three different descriptives or words that express the word love that we have in English. We only have one word, love, but in the Greek there's three and these three different ones are first of all eros which describes romantic or in the fullness of time sexual love and this is the word from which we get the word erotic, eros. Um, Then there is filio which is a kind of intense friendship kind of love um, from which we get um, I don't know, Philadelphia for example, love of the brethren Um, Anglophile, love of the English, Francophile, love of the French, Um, anything with phil in it uh, references a love for that particular thing but it's a kind of interest, intense interest or brotherly kind of friendship sort of love And then there's agape. Agape is the self-emptying, self-sacrificing, complete, total commitment, expecting nothing back. Which in the the old authorised version Bible is translated as charity in 1 Corinthians 13. And this is one reason why, for example, um, organisations that seek to do good uh, to others are described as charities. Um, And although that word has almost become kind of debased in some ways, the, the definition is partly meant to be that whereas a business 
recognizes that there's outlay in order to make a profit. You know that you have to spend in order to reap uh, income afterwards. So there's laying out in order to get back in. Charity is by definition, it's that expression of love, that agape, which is giving out, expecting nothing back. If a charity, for example, is opening a soup kitchen and feeding the homeless on the streets, it's not saying to them, now, next week you each bring back ten quid and uh, you'll, you'll sell so many of these loaves of bread onto other people and we'll make a wee pyramid scheme and we'll, we'll all make some money out of this. No, they're not trying to do this. They're simply giving it out, expecting nothing back. And this is part of the expression of agape, this self-giving, um, self-sacrificing love. Now, just, just by way of explaining um, that, um, it's, we, we lose it in English. In, the, in John chapter 21, when Peter, um, Jesus is saying to Peter, you know, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? You know, and, and he says, do you love me? And he says, do you agape me? In other words, are you willing to, to expend yourself on my behalf? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter says, you know that I filio you. You know that I am your friend, is what he's saying back. So Jesus asks a second time, do you agape me? And Peter says a second time, you know that I filio you. You know that I am your friend. And the third time Jesus says, Simon, son of Judah, do you filio me? You know, do you? Are you even my friend, really? And that's what it says. Peter was grieved that Jesus said the third time, do you filio me? Do you love me? And we, we read it in English and think that Peter's just offended that Jesus has asked three times. But really what it means is he, he's offended that Jesus is even questioning whether or not he considers him a friend. So we, we lose this in translation to an extent. But this sense of this, this love, this agape, this self-giving love, this is the kind of love God has for his people. He expends himself on their behalf. The love described here in verses 16 and 17 is not eros. It's not enough to fancy someone and to pursue that un unsanctified lust and then turn around and say, oh, we love each other, and God is love, so it must be okay, you know, so he must approve of this. You know, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him, so we must be okay with God, no matter what we're doing. You know, do you really think that the holy and pure love of God in heaven amounts to, you know, no more than an orgy of physical appetites, that this is the kind of love Jesus was talking about when he rebuked the Sadducees and said, don't you realize that in heaven they neither marry nor are given in marriage? He didn't mean it's just a 1960s style free for all uh, in that regard. But rather, he's explaining that the, the love that there is in heaven, um, despite the fact that some people who believe that, that, that that's the case, that, that Jesus just approves of any and every kind of so-called love here, that the love that God has for us, Anything that we choose to call love doesn't measure up for it necessarily. The agape love of God, the self-giving, self-emptying, self-sacrificing love of God for sinners would bring them to heaven where they neither marry nor are given in marriage because the quality and intensity and depth and power of the love amongst the redeemed there eclipses and indefinitely surpasses whatever love we may have had for one another here. Such a love will mean that we need not fear the judgment seat, though we must certainly appear before it. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. You know, we'd all be a wee bit nervous if we were, I was about to say come before the Queen. Uh, obviously it's a king now, so I have to get used to that idea. But let's say you are summoned before the king. And you might think, hmm, it's a wee bit kind of nervous. And there you go down to the Holyrood Palace or whatever it might be. And... Um, and you're appearing before the king. And you, you might be nervous, or you might be anxious, but if you know in advance that the reason you've been summoned is like to get the OBE or something like that. It's, it's a nice thing that's being done for you. It's an honour that's being bestowed on you. So when you turn up with it all carefully arranged and choreographed and the, the minute and the, the moment of, of your date and time and everything is already specially processed and then you come up and you, 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 you take your wee award from the king or whatever, that's not something you're going to be afraid of because it's something to positively look forward to. Although it's still as perhaps, you know, frightening in one sense or nerve-wracking in one sense. You don't have to be afraid if you know that what's in store for you is blessing and honor and reward. And what we receive from God when we get to that judgment seat before which we must all appear is that which the Lord Jesus Christ has already purchased for us. When God the Son has already put the greatest honor upon you by calling you his own and making you his child and dying for your sins, you do not fear the place at which you are finally united to him. Now verse 18 which says there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love this verse troubles many a devout soul but I would suggest to you that its explanation is in fact very simple it is not intended to mean that we should here upon earth abandon all fear of the Lord for that would be folly indeed to abandon what the Bible describes as the beginning of wisdom. But rather it is simply an acknowledgement that here upon earth our love is very far from being perfect. It is very imperfect. If it were otherwise, if our love could be perfected here, then surely we would have passed beyond the power of sin. If our love was perfect here, we would love God so much that we wouldn't sin at all. And that is certainly not the case. As the Apostle Paul testifies in Romans 7, we'll just read a couple of verses in verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do, what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Does he not describe the situation of inner turmoil, of spiritual conflict, tormented, punished, you might say almost, by his inability to do perfectly here upon earth that which his soul longs to do? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Of course we're not yet perfect in love. We're still here. How could we be anything else? How can we be perfect in our sin-ridden, fallen condition? So our imperfect love 
has not yet cast out all fear. We still fear to fail. We still fear to fall away. We still fear to sin against God, and yet we still do it. There, in glory, we shall have no such fears. Then indeed shall our love be perfected in him, where there is no fear in love, but our perfect love will have cast out all fear. There's no longer any fear of punishment, because we are then perfected in love. And no, we aren't yet. Not yet. But we trust that we shall be. And in the meantime, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. We've already talked about the kind of love God has amongst the three persons of the Godhead. Such an intensity and power of divine mutual support and commitment. Such bonds of affection and mutual preferment of the other. And this is the kind of interwoven divine love which he willingly extends to encompass his children, his bride. They cannot deny the love to any part of the body of Christ without denying it to themselves and denying it to Christ by extension. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his bro- also love his brother. It's as though, say, if a husband repeatedly told his wife that she, what beautiful eyes she had, and okay, she believes him that her eyes are beautiful, but she thinks she's got an ugly chin. So one day she decides to try and cut off her chin. You know, is, is that going to make her eyes more beautiful? Or is it just going to mar the whole visage uh, that's there? You, if you damage any one part of that which is beloved, you damage the whole. If you, if you cease to love, or if you cannot bring yourself to love any part of the whole of God's children, of God's church, of God's bride, you damage the whole. And we fail to show the love to Christ himself that we ought to. God delights in his children, each one. God delights in his bride, every individual component thereof, every individual believing soul. How can we hate or fail to love that which God himself pronounces beloved and precious. If we love him, we will compel ourselves to love that which he loves. By failing to do so, we not only harm ourselves and sadden the Lord, but we sin against him because we're breaking one of his commandments in the larger catechism, as I'm sure you all know. At number 24, the question is, what is sin? And the answer is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. So this is not a soft optional extra. It is a commandment. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And it's not always easy. We know that. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's hard enough to love ourselves. In fact, that may be the hardest of all. But if you make anything your life's work, hard as it may be, you'll get better at it. 
The first job I did after I left school was a lab technician, and I wasn't any good at it, I have to admit. But when people would then ask me, what do you do? I'd say, oh, I'm a lab technician. What does that involve? And then I'd start to tell them all about the work and what it involves. And as I was listening to myself blethering away, I thought, I didn't realise I knew all this. You know, I've obviously imbibed so much just with the, the months and years of working there that, you know, there's, there's all this knowledge that I actually know that I didn't even knew that I know. But it's just because it was my work and I was doing it day in, day out, you start to learn, you start to know even without realising it. And if you make something your life's work, hard as it may be, you'll get better at it. You'll start to know more about it. You'll start to do it better. You'll start to do it even without thinking. Think of it as practice for heaven. Or if that's too hard, just grit your teeth and do it because the Lord commands it. Because if he can manage to love us, and that was surely the hardest, so surely we can love others for his sake. We love because he first loved us. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, and we must, must love his brother also. Let us pray. Our gracious and loving God, we know that we are so unlovely so much of the time, so unlovable in our own eyes. And yet thou hast loved us, not just for a wee while, but from all eternity, before ever we did anything that would merit thy love, before ever we first sinned, before ever we came into existence. Thou hadst already loved us from all eternity and brought us into being in the fullness of time. And that just blows our mind away. And there's nothing we can render to Thee, O Lord, save to love Thee now in return with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And in some ways, we find that easier than we do loving one another as we ought. But we pray for grace, Lord, that just as Thou hast loved us, we may learn to accept that thou dost love us, so there must be something in us that thou dost love, and also to love one another, which with all our failures and faults becomes easier to do as we grow in the love and the knowledge of thee. Just as we love our children, no matter what they do, no matter how much they might try our patience or exasperate us, we never cease to love them. The relationship never reduces. So, Lord, help us to love our brothers and sisters as an expression also of loving thee most of all. So make us more like Jesus in all that we do. And as we have that love and as we share that love, so help us to shine with that love that others may be drawn not to us but to thee, the living God who is love personified. Hear our prayers, we beseech thee, and pardon our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we'll close our worship this evening singing to the Lord's praise in Psalm 116. The traditional Psalms, Psalm 116, of which we'll sing the verses marked 1 to 7. That is the first five stanzas. I love the Lord because my voice and prayers he did hear. I, while I live, will call on him who bowed to me his ear. Of death the cords and sorrows did about me compass round. The pains of hell took hold on me. I grief and trouble found. And so on then to the verse 7. O thou 
my soul do thou return unto thy quiet rest for largely lo the Lord to thee his bounty hast expressed the first five stanzas verses 1 to 7 from Psalm 116 to God's praise of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God our Heavenly Father and the communion of God the Holy Ghost rest upon you and remain with